kind of in the heart of a series that's a little bit unusual for us. Um, let me just start by saying, if you're new here, my name is Jeremy Kelly, and I'm one of the elders, and we have been preaching through a series called Diagnosis. Um, generally, what we do at Renovation is we'll walk through a book of the Bible and preach expositorily through a, 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 a book or passages, and we just made our way after several years <laughs> through Romans. And uh, this summer, we took some time out to do this thing called diagnosis. And we are, preaching, um, we are preaching through different passages, but what we've been doing this summer is asking ourselves questions, really with the idea that we would diagnose where we're at, get a little introspective, spend some time thinking about measuring where, where are we at in, in our walk with the Lord, and how do we diagnose where our heart's at? How do we diagnose where we are in relationship um, to our walk with Christ? And so we use kind of a template, a book that, um, that was written that really helps us ask these questions. And then we're not really preaching, we're not preaching this book, we're preaching from the Word of God. Um, but the questions prompted us to, to look into the scriptures and try to find answers. The name of the book's in the back, it's called 10 Questions to Diagnose Your Spiritual Health uh, by Donald S. Whitney. It's really a great book. It's an easy read. It's in the back. Grab one. Uh, you can throw 10 bucks in the thing or just keep it. It doesn't matter. Um, we just want, we want you to have it uh, and take a look at it. Um, but we've, we've walked through these questions um, with the idea that we would together begin to just kind of get a diagnosis. You know, what's going on with our hearts? Uh, some of the questions we walked through, we started out with, uh, do you thirst for God, number one? Asking ourselves, do we have a thirst for God? Is those who believe and rely on Christ. Uh, number two, are you governed increasingly by God's word? Is the word of God really the foundational basis by which I govern my life, by which I make decisions? And if I am governed by God's word, how, how, how much am I diving into it and relying on it? Am I letting it change my perspective and shift who I am? Or am I trying to bring my own thoughts to the word of God instead of letting the word of God tell me how I'm supposed to think? So we ask that question. Three, are we more loving? It's those who have been saved by an incredible Savior who paid the price for us. Are we responding with a life of worship that loves better? We ask that question in week three. Week four, are you more sensitive to God's presence? Just getting uh, very self uh, aware um, and evaluating ourselves in terms of are we walking by the Spirit? Are we more sensitive to the presence of God in our life? And if not, how do we do that practically? How do we increase our sensitivity to the presence of God and His leading? Number five, do you have a growing concern for the spiritual and temporal needs of others? Well, that's a good question. In my walk with Christ, as I grow in Him, and as I diagnose where my heart's at, if I am one who's relying on Christ and living for Him, am I increasingly more aware of uh, the needs of others, and am I having compassion on others? Not the feeling of compassion, but really entering into the suffering of another and bearing burdens with others. Am I living a life like that? Number six, uh, Mike talked about, do you delight in the bride of Christ, in the church? Where are you in relationship to the body of Christ as one who's been saved into Christ's church? Um, number seven, 
Are the spiritual disciplines increasingly important to you? That's a good question. Where is my discipline um, in terms of reading the word, prayer, um, and so many other spiritual disciplines that sometimes we forget in terms of the way that we live our lives and the way that we serve others and the way that we reflect on our own hearts? Are we increasing in our spiritual disciplines? And that brings us to number eight. This is really one of those good time seeker, like, man, it's great for, good time for visitors to be here when we ask this question. This is one of those sermons that just draws people in. You ready? Do you still grieve over your sin? <laughs> I was being sarcastic. It's a good question. And that's what we're going to approach today. Do you still grieve over your sin? I got to tell you, when I, when I read this, this is an unpopular question today. Not just in the world, but in the church. Grieve over sin? Am I supposed to? Am I supposed to grieve over my sin? Because really, everything that we hear today is you shouldn't feel bad about anything, right? I mean, feeling bad is, is bad. You should never feel bad. I mean, we, we are like, we are the anti-feel-bad culture, right? I mean, if any kid in school, K through 12, anywhere ever feels bad, someone definitely bullied them, right? You can never feel bad about anything anymore. What we see from the Word of God is feeling bad can be useful. And at times, it's, it's appropriate. Now you say, wait a minute. Because as we talk about it in the context of the gospel and in the context of the church, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Absolutely. Jesus has redeemed us and saved us from our sin. And we are no longer condemned, not because of ourselves, but because of him. Right? Because he experienced condemnation on our behalf so we don't have to. He experienced the cross, and that's absolutely true. So what is the appropriate posture in terms of my own sin going forward? And is it really a sign of spiritual health that I would grieve or feel sorrow when reflecting on my own sin? I think it's clear from the scripture that that's absolutely the case. That that would be a sign of increased spiritual health when we grieve over our sin. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you would speak to us from your word, that you would shape us, that you would encourage us. God, I pray that you change us, change me. Help me to see things the way you see them, that I would grow that I would change, that I would be more like you. Walk in the truth of your gospel. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. We're going to start there, and we're going to maybe jump around to a couple passages. But this is an interesting parable. In Luke chapter 18, starting at verse 9. We see Jesus addressing a particular attitude, which really isn't the only attitude that's relevant to this question, but it is one, and it's one that Jesus addressed by way of parable here in Luke chapter 18. He told this parable to some, listen to who he's talking to, all right? He told this parable to some who what? Trusted in themselves that they were righteous 
and treated others with contempt. That's who he's talking to, all right? He told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Anyone ever meet someone like that? And Jesus is speaking to them in parable, and he says this. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the word of the Lord. Amen. What a picture Jesus paints. I mean, he really, he really lays out a picture that, that would uh, jump out to his listeners. Because he's painting a picture of two different men. And when he, when he articulates the picture of the first man, this is really a man that I think we're conditioned in the church to, to know is, is the negative, right? The Pharisee. Not then. Then the Pharisee, he was the keeper of the law. The Pharisee was the religious man. The Pharisee was the man to be respected. His audience would have been thinking about the Pharisee as, oh, this has got to be the example of the good dude. Like the Pharisee is the man that we should be exemplifying. The Pharisee is the man that we should be looking up to. And so Jesus says, there's a Pharisee. And then he says, juxtaposed to the Pharisee, there's a tax collector. Now the people he's talking to, his audience, when they heard the word tax collector, tax collector would immediately loathe this person. This was a guy who was a betrayer of the Jewish people. He was in cahoots with the Romans, the rulers, those who ruled over them. And he was taking money from the Jews and paying taxes to the Romans. He was a thief. Generally, tax collectors would take a little chop on the side for themselves. And so they were the men that his audience, Jesus' audience, they wouldn't have liked this guy. So here's the Pharisee, the respected religious leader, and here's the tax collector, the thief, the thief and the betrayer of our own people. And he paints a picture of these two men. And Jesus jumps right to the heart of these guys. The first guy stands up by himself and prays aloud so everybody can hear him. Look at me. I'm so grateful that I'm not like these other people. I fast, I give my money, thank God I'm not like this tax collector. That's the first man. You see a picture of his heart, don't you? He's certainly concerned with other people knowing what he does. And there's, there's an issue with this Pharisee because the way he's articulating his prayer, he's thankful that he's not like others. There's, there's an issue of self-reliance there, is there not? There's an issue of, I've kind of accomplished some stuff here, and thank God I'm able to do it. 
Thank God that I have some some self-capability to not be like these other people who aren't quite like me. And then you see the tax collector. You know, it, it would be a guy in the picture as Jesus paints it, it would be a guy that you would probably not really want to emulate. And what's he doing? He's over off to the side. He's by himself. Can't even lift his own head. You see a sense in this man that he is distraught. You see a sense in this man that he is burdened. You see a sense in this man that he is so uh, much in anguish over his life and over his sin that he can't lift his head. His eyes won't be lifted up because he doesn't want others to look at him. He feels pain. He feels anguish over his sin. He prays uh, that Jesus would have mercy on him. He beats his breast. He says to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's a recognition in the heart and in the life of the tax collector that he is a sinner. That, that he, he's unable to accomplish what this Pharisee claims he has accomplished. And his cry, his heart cry is that, that God would have mercy on him. And what does Jesus say in relationship to these two men? That the tax collector went home justified and the other didn't. That the person who exalts himself will be humbled. But the person who's humble will be exalted. What an interesting perspective Jesus gives us, right? You know, in relationship to the gospel, that posture, that heart, that picture that Jesus paints in this parable is so true. As we come every Sunday to the Lord's table, there's a recognition that we're sinners. In fact, the reality that we need a solution for our sin, that we even need a savior, that Jesus died and paid a price that we owed, the reality of the gospel must have the prerequisite that we recognize there's a huge problem we have unless Jesus comes and, and, and fixes it, right? There's a recognition of, of our own sin. There's a recognition that we need a Savior, just even in the reality and in the heart of grasping the gospel to begin with. There needs to come the moment in the life of every believer that they recognize they're in desperate need of a Savior and they can't save themselves, right? There needs to come uh, the moment in the heart of every person where they recognize the desperation of their own sin, they feel grief and sorrow over the own, their own sin, and they in turn, this is the gospel, rely on Christ instead of themselves to be the payment for their sin, right? That's the heart of the gospel. If you don't think you have a problem and you don't need a savior, there's never going to be repentance and faith in your life. So in the very beginning, in understanding the gospel, there's a need for repentance. There's a need for sorrow. There's a need for grief. There's a need for recognition. So you see this man, this tax collector, who recognized it, who because of his recognition and his grief over his sin, he's way ahead of the game than the Pharisee who thinks he can take care of it himself. 
because he recognizes his need. And he grieves over his sin. And he beats his chest. And he, and he, and he cries out to God for mercy. And those who are humble, who are beating their chest and grieving over sin and saying, God, have mercy on me, God exalts the humble. And those who think they can deal with it themselves and are so grateful that they're so awesome, God will humble the self-righteous. We see this heart throughout the scriptures, that God lifts up the humble. Matthew 4, or I'm sorry, 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who, who mourn, for they'll be lifted. I'm sorry. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. So we come to Christ. We recognize the need for our sin. We experience the gospel. We experience salvation. And now as we are walking in sanctification, as God is changing us and making us more like him, listen, let me be clear. There's nothing we can add to our salvation. Jesus saved us, amen? He did it. It is finished. He did it alone. His sacrifice was enough. But as we respond with a life of worship, out of gratefulness for the gospel and the forgiveness of Christ, how do we walk now in a way that we are increasing in our, in our knowledge of Christ and in our walk with the Lord as we grow closer to Him and begin to change. See, we recognize this need as we walk out our sanctification. As God begins to change us and make us more like Him. Listen to Jonathan Edwards. In 1725, before he moved to Northampton to take over, I think it was father, his grandfather's church. As a young man, he, he, he wrote this. I have had a vastly greater sense of my own wickedness and the badness of my heart than ever I had before my conversion. It has often appeared to me that if God should mark iniquity against me, I should appear the very worst of all mankind. Of all that have been since the beginning of the world to this time, and that I should have by far the lowest place in hell. My wickedness, as I am in myself, has long appeared to me perfectly ineffable in swallowing up all thought and imagination. Like an infinite deluge or mountains over my, over my head. I know not how to express better what my sins appear to me to be then by heaping infinite upon infinite and multiplying infinite by infinite. Very often for these many years, these expressions are in my mind and in my mouth. Infinite upon infinite, infinite upon infinite. When I look into my heart and take a view of my wickedness, it looks like an abyss infinitely deeper than hell. Wow. What a reflection. One of the things that stands out to me about that quote is he says, I have a vastly greater sense of my wickedness and the badness of my heart than ever I had before my conversion.
Is grief and mourning and sorrow over our sin just a one-time thing before we come to Christ? Or is it something that we continue in as we grow closer to Jesus? I think we would be in error to think it's a one-time moment to grieve over our sin. Is this normal? Is it healthy? Is it, is it a healthy Christian life to experience this kind of grief and sorrow? Or is this, Jonathan Edwards quote, the expressions of someone who's obsessive and, and groveling? Is this a misunderstanding of grace? Or is this someone who's growing in grace that feels grief and sorrow over their sin? This would be an interesting thing for us as we are diagnosing our hearts and as, as, as Christians, as we're walking with Christ, to ask ourselves this question. How should we feel right now about our sin? How often should we reflect on where we fall short and, and what should be the emotion that comes from it? What should be our posture towards our own sin? You know, something we do here every single week that we've added that I think has been a struggle for some is we... Do a prayer of repentance. We repent together corporately as a church. And then I think you'll notice, I hope you notice, that we read from the scriptures an assurance of pardon. We want to practice corporately a weekly moment where we grieve and repent over our sinfulness. And then we remind ourselves of God's word where he speaks assurance of pardon over our lives because of the gospel. Amen? Folks, the reality about repentance is that, is that it takes some sorrow and some grief over our sin to lead us to that place where we look to God, and this is the definition of repentance, and say, turn me. I want to be turned. I want to change the way I'm behaving. Amen? Repentance isn't just a bad feeling. Repentance is a turning, a turning away from and walking in the other direction, away from sin. And the reality is, is that as saved Christians who've been redeemed by a Savior, who did everything that was required and everything that was necessary for our salvation, we still walk and we still sin and we still hurt each other, do we not? So there's an appropriate level of sorrow and grief that we should feel as we grow closer to Christ. Isn't it fun to talk about grief and sorrow? I think it's important. Folks, we, we could overdo this. We could live in a place of condemnation, and that's not what I'm saying at all. Because our hope is in the gospel and in the reality of Christ's righteousness. An alien righteousness that isn't our own, that we get. Amen? That's our joy. But can I say something? Our culture is not prone to overdo this. Our culture is not prone to overdo grief for our sin. It's just the opposite. Our culture is to not think about it at all. Our tendency, potentially, is to forget and to move on and to just worship and hear clever words and exciting things and joyful things and not grieve over and think about the reality of our sin that leads us to repentance. James 4.8, and really the book of James that kind of calls us to this, is very um, clear that sin's pervasive, is it not? 
Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You know, as I reflect on my life, a snap in response to a loved one when I'm tired and I get home from work, being excessively harsh with my kids, maybe a pattern of indulgence in things where God's calling you to restrain yourself, lack of gratefulness and thankfulness, a lustful glance, quick judgment passed on someone else, spending recklessly without regard for stewardship, impatience, fear to speak, God's calling you to say something, Sin's persuasive. Sin is pervasive in our hearts. Really, in some ways, sin is where we often believe a false promise from the world instead of promises from God. We believe a false promise of what the world has to offer as opposed to the promise that God gives us as we walk in relationship to his incredible law that's written on our hearts through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's pervasive. You know what's interesting is I get self-reflective and think about the sin in my life. I certainly don't grieve enough over how much it hurts others. How much my selfishness has affected my marriage. How much my anger and short-temperedness has affected my kids. How much my greed has affected the ability of the church to do the work that God's called it to. How much my impatience has affected others at work. How much my, my sinfulness has hurt and sinned against others. I think if I was to sit and reflect on it, I would feel very similarly, and at times have, to Jonathan Edwards. It can be overwhelming. It can feel like mountains over your head. It can feel like infinity upon infinity. It can feel like it's insurmountable. Uh, the, the recurring sin that, that has been plaguing you or me or, or any of us, and, and you say to yourself, I just can't stop, I want to stop. I, as Paul writes, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do. Even Paul wrote, at the end of his life, he was the chief of sinners. There was a self-awareness in the life of the great apostle Paul that he was a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And the reality about the gospel is that I, Jeremy Kelly, need the grace of God as much today as the day I first got down on my knees and realized my need for Christ and was saved. And I walk in an assurance of pardon that brings incredible joy. And I also simultaneously need to walk as a believer with a sense of grief and sorrow over my continued, continued sin. Why? Because the closer I get to the gospel and the more I focus in on the reality of what Jesus has done for me, the more I begin to realize how my sin caused the cross. 
then that should cause grief. The reality that it was necessary for the Savior to die because of my sinfulness. The reality of a God who would come off of his throne, the God of heaven, the perfect God who, who is gracious and loving and omniscient and sovereign and powerful, that he would get off of his throne and that he would come to me and that he would kneel down in front of me who's in comparison to him, uh, as, as we saw in Isaiah, I'm like an ant, woe is me. In the presence of God, I would fall to my face with absolute realization that I am nothing in compared to him. And that sovereign God of the universe got off his throne and washed my feet? That God of the universe got off of his throne, and when I wasn't even looking for him, and my abject rejection for him, he reached down into my life, and he paid the price and sacrificed himself for me? My response should be nothing but, no way. And in the face of that kind of grace, and that kind of love, and that kind of forgiveness, I still continue to sin against him who did that for me, should grieve me. And like the tax collector, that realization produces a cry from the heart of a child of God. And God responds to that cry. One of the greatest examples of this type of cry is David. David was a sinner. Read the story of David. Committed great sin. You saw Saul, David's predecessor and father-in-law, he didn't obey God at all. They went and they pursued the enemy and God told them to wipe them out completely and he left the king alive, King Agag. And Saul was disobedient. And Samuel came to Saul and he said, you've lost the kingdom in your disobedience. And Saul's response was, listen, just do me a favor. All right, Samuel, the prophet, we're, uh, we're about to get up in front of the entire nation and celebrate this victory. Just play along. Saul didn't repent. He didn't cry out to God for his sin. He wasn't concerned about what God thought about him. He was concerned about what the people thought about him. And he said to Samuel, do me a favor. I'm going to bring King Agag up on stage here. And we're going to just celebrate this big victory. And then I'll deal with this whole repentance thing later, all right? And Samuel said, okay. And one of my favorite scenes in the scripture happens in this moment. I wish they'd make a movie about it. Agag gets up on stage. Saul stands up. The people cheer. And what did Samuel do? He grabbed a sword and hacked him to pieces. Agag, in front of the whole crowd. David. 
David sees a woman on a rooftop and begins to lust. He didn't go to battle like he should have. He stayed home, sent the army. He had idle hands. He should have been fighting. He was lounging on a rooftop. And he saw this woman who was not his. And he had to have her. He committed adultery. Not only did he commit adultery, he sent the woman's husband to the front lines and killed him. A little bit different than just not killing the king like God said. Commits adultery, kills her husband. And the scriptures say David was a man after God's own heart. Why? Read Psalm 51 with me. This is his response to his sin with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Here it is. Here's the key. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in, my, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and in, in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. You alone I've sinned against. David, not trying to save face. Not trying to have the people like him. David falls to his face and says, to you alone. Prompted by the prophet Nathan, as you read Samuel, who comes to him and speaks the word of the Lord to him. 
Nathan, David could have had him killed in a moment. But Nathan, with boldness, goes before David and he says, hey, there's a dude that's got thousands of lambs. He's a wealthy, wealthy guy. And there's, a, there's one man who's only got one beautiful little lamb that he's raised since it was born and he loves it. And it's like a part of his family. And the, and the guy that had all the lambs he could ever want goes to the guy that only has the one and he takes that lamb and he kills it and sacrifices it and he eats it for his dinner. And David stands up with outrage and he says, who is this man? I'll kill him. And Nathan points his finger right in his face and he says, it's you. You're that guy. You took that man's wife and you had him killed. You have all the women you could ever want. And what did David do? Fell to his face. He said, God, I've sinned against you and you alone. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. He writes that the letter he wrote to them had caused them grief, and he was glad. Because that godly grief led to repentance. So what do we see here from the scriptures that God wants from us? I think we see clearly a posture and a heart from a believer that recognizes a couple of things. Number one, we still sin. And it should bother us. Number two, continuing and walking in the reality of the gospel as we allow the gospel to come closer and closer into our focus and as we concentrate on the reality of what the gospel has done for us, we should feel grief over our continued sin that leads us not to condemnation but to repentance, that leads us to our assurance of pardon and hope that God is faithful and just to forgive us. Amen? Godly grief leads to repentance and joy in the reality of our salvation and our forgiveness that comes from Christ alone. Here's the difference. You can't save yourself. You are not like the righteous Pharisee who thinks that he's just great and thanks God that he's not like the other dude. The posture in the heart of a believer who understands the gospel is one that beats his chest and realizes, I can't save myself. I'm not relying on myself. My reliance in, in relationship to the gospel, my reliance is continually on Christ. I grieve over the fact that I can't change myself, that I continue in sin, and I say, God, in repentance, turn me. a man I grew up knowing. He was my pastor my whole life, just about. Hired me and Chris, my brother, for our first jobs out of Bible school and seminary. Pastored a church in uh, Cicero through the 80s and 90s. A remarkable man named Paul Wagner. I'll never forget a story he told as a young kid sitting and listening to him. He had grown up in faith. And uh, 
walked away from the Lord. Had been a missionary with a tribe in Brazil, got malaria, got discouraged, completely walked away from Christ. His marriage was falling apart. He was far from God. Had completely rejected God in his marriage and in his lifestyle and in the way that he was doing things. And he speaks about a moment where in complete desperation and realization of the desperateness of his sin, he collapses into his wife's lap and he laid his head on her lap and he was weeping and he said these words, God, turn me and I'll be turned. I can't do it. You have to turn me and I'll be turned. What a heart of repentance. My sin is overwhelming me, and I feel grief. And my hope isn't in my ability to do anything. My hope is in you. My hope is in you. You turn me, and I'll be turned. Let me say, as we look at a diagnosis of our hearts, if you feel that this morning... That is an evidence that the grace of God is at work in your heart. If there is no grief at all, no concern at all, no care in the world for sin at all in your life, that's where you should be concerned. Those who don't know Christ don't care about their sin. But the more we get to know Jesus, the more we'll care the more we'll grieve, the more we will repent. And then we read already what happens to the humble as opposed to the righteous. He will lift us up. Amen? There is appropriate place as we look in the scripture for grief over our sin. It should be increasing. And simultaneously, it seems like a contradiction, but it's not. As we repent, we will in an increasing way realize the joy of our salvation because of him, because we're in Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Come to you this morning, Lord, and we recognize our need We don't see sufficiency in ourself. We need you. God, we come humbly. As those who fall short. We come as those who continue to sin. Lead us, Lord, to repentance. Lead us to repentance and faith. In the God who has done it all on our behalf. Help us as we reflect on the gospel to do that more often. To preach the gospel to ourselves. Help us if we struggle in this area to go to your word and pray through Psalm 51. To pray to pray the very prayer that David prayed in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. 
Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. We trust you. We rely on you completely. Help us to follow you better in these matters. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.